This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. All right, welcome back to Transparency. We're excited to talk with Sasha Ayad today. Um, Most of our viewers, I think, know you, Sasha. I think a lot of um, people that tune into our podcast probably watch um, yours as well. Um, Jedra Wider Lens, um, as well as just familiar with with your YouTube channel. Uh, So we're excited to to have you on and and talk to you. Uh, So welcome. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. We definitely have a lot of overlapping listener base, so I'm really glad to be here as well. So we would love for um, our viewers just to get to know you a little bit, um, you know, on a, on a personal level, professional level. If you could just talk a little bit about um, your professional history and, and who you are. Sure. So I was kind of thinking about how far back exactly to start. Let me just start further back to give some more context. So Um, I went to uh, undergrad originally thinking I wanted to study medicine, actually. I had always been really interested in like taking care of people and the kind of nurturing caregiving aspect of it. And my family, uh, Egyptian family, you know, being uh, the parent of a doctor is like this really awesome, prestigious thing. So that's what I thought I wanted to do. And then I got to undergrad and realized that chemistry was the bane of my existence and I really hated it. <laughs> and I was, um, I was interested in science, but I don't think my mind really worked that way. And I was also just having way too much fun in undergrad. So I ended up putting my pre-med pathway to the side. And I, I started taking psychology and sociology classes and found them absolutely fascinating. Um, Initially, I was just really intrigued by some of the unusual kind of abnormal psychology types of things that you might study, um, like unusual conditions or mental health issues or even traumatic brain injuries. I was really interested in all of that. Um, And I was also interested in kind of collective, collective ideas. So like, how does a culture influence the way we think? I was studying a lot of social psychology and that kind of thing. So I remember... um, when I decided to get my master's in counseling psychology, um, we didn't really have much training around that time, around gender, gender identity, that kind of thing. So- When would that have been been about? um, I started grad school, I think in 2003 or four. Okay. Okay. So at that time, you know, I had heard of course of the concept of what was transsexual at the time and then gender identity disorder. And I just remember thinking, wow, what an absolutely unusual but difficult experience. Like if someone is born into the world convinced that they are the wrong biological sex, that would be very difficult. And I was at the time just completely sympathetic to anything that we could do to help alleviate the suffering of that person. And I also took the perspective that, you know, you got to take people at face value at their word. And if someone is saying that this is their experience, let's just kind of go with it and see if we can alleviate their suffering. So I never worked with anybody with gender dysphoria. So it wasn't like something I had spent much time thinking about. It was just like a passing, you know, chapter in a book or something in grad school. Um, Also though, you know, my own personal journey with my sexual orientation and developing my own sense of self 
kind of took a lot of weird twists and turns. I think as many females experience with their sexual orientation. So I also knew personally that there's not a straight line um, in terms of delineating like who you are and what category you fit into. So without going into detail, I just had personal experiences through people I dated and, you know, romantic attractions that I had that were varied, right? Unusual pathways, I suppose. So um, fast forward a little bit, I was working in um, a counseling center for women and children who were victims of sexual abuse and domestic violence. And that um, placement had a strong feminist theory behind it. And so I was also starting to think about things like male violence and women um, in those kinds of abusive situations. So there were all of these factors that kind of confluence of factors that led me to where I am today, which is really interesting. I was also later on working with autistic children. So I was doing like in-home therapy with children on the autism spectrum. And then I guess most recently prior to my private practice, I was working in a middle school. And so this was around 2013 when I got that job. So what I started to notice is that there were these news stories that I saw about trans kids, which was a concept that was pretty new. So even when I had been in graduate school, we had heard about um, gender identity disorder and that the concept of a transsexual or transgender person was more of an adult. It wasn't talked about in childhood in the same way. And so around 2013 and 14, I started seeing these news reports of trans kids. And the, the first thing that came up for me from like the feminist background that I had was, gosh, a lot of this is stereotypes. So I started thinking a little bit more deeply into the question compared to what I had thought about in graduate school. I thought a lot of this is stereotypes. And I also knew that a lot of the experiences that are being uh, pointed at to indicate someone is a trans kid are also very common in the lesbian community. I knew that. And I knew that a lot of gay men experience some kind of gender incongruence as children. So I started to notice this and I thought, hmm, this is kind of interesting. And then I started just kind of going down a rabbit hole on the internet, looking at parent reports that were starting to pop up uh, of people not only reporting that their children were, quote, coming out as trans in a very similar way, but also this part that really shocked me was that doctors and therapists were affirming almost immediately. And that was what really, to me, uh, raised some red flags. And then congruently, I was running our school's first GSA, Gay Straight Alliance. And so I, was, um, I started this GSA club for middle schoolers and high schoolers. I worked in a charter school at the time. And in those meetings, I was really aware that the kids were coming in with all kinds of language that wasn't something I had been exposed to as a, a graduate student. It was new. They were talking about, you know, gender identity bracelets where you wear a different color every day to indicate what gender you are that day. And there were all of these new ideas and new concepts these kids were talking about. And frankly, they were confused, but they also seemed really wrapped up in it. So I, I can pause there because there's a little bit more to the story, but 
that's when I really started to think something culturally is going on, which is really different from what I read about in textbooks in graduate school. And I knew that there was more of a social aspect to it. And then I remember from you saying that, like, like, were you like supposed to be in like, or you were, you were, the school had uh, implemented some sort of like um, uh, transgender awareness training or something that was again, yeah. all just in the affirmative. And you're like, you were already like, no, this doesn't seem right. So you kind of like, you never, um, like you kind of, you kind of clued into this from like day one of, of what yeah. was going on culturally. And so you never, you never had that kind of, oh no, what are we doing that a lot, a lot of other people um, did. But what was that like? So you, can you talk about that, that curriculum and, and what your reaction was to it? Sure. And, and I think there's a little piece of background that I want to add before I tell that story. There was a kid that I was working with in the middle school. I was there for like about three, three years or so, two and a half or three years. And there was a kid I had been working with in the middle school who was female. She was very just socially awkward. She didn't really have a lot of friends. She used to kind of have problems with some of her teachers and she would be like, inconsolably angry and I was like one of the people on campus that she actually trusted and talked to and about a year into our work she started saying I don't think I'm a girl Miss Ayad and we would talk about it and I would inquire more and she was saying oh well on Tumblr I saw this or that thing and I think I'd like a binder and so I was really careful about it because I knew that if I was too pushy she could retreat but if I was too affirming, I could inadvertently lead her down a path that may not be best for her. So I worked really carefully with this kid. And long story short, in the course of a year or so, you know, she ended up making some friends at school and the gender thing just kind of disappeared. And the way she explained it to me at the end of the school year was, you know, I was lonely. And when I started to make friends at school, I realized, you know, I don't need to go down this gender path and be trans just to make friends online. I started making real life friends. So while that was happening, the uh, school, the school was a district of like 13 campuses. And so we would have periodic trainings where the school counselors from each campus would come together and be trained on various things. And this was a charter school system in Houston that served really like low income families and a lot of marginalized kind of families with all kinds of different challenges. So I thought it was really interesting when they said, oh, we're gonna be doing a training on supporting transgender students. Cause I remember asking around at the time out of 13 campuses, we only had four students identifying as trans in the whole school system. So I was like, hmm, given that there's so much other stuff going on in this population, we're talking about like generational trauma and serious poverty and like really chaotic lives funny that we're doing a trans student training and it was put on by some local advocacy group and by the time we had that training I mean I knew my shit like I had stacks and stacks of like research and data and I just I had been totally going down a rabbit hole of disbelief about what was happening so by the time we got to this training I saw the training as being completely ideological not based in evidence not even really with a clear definition of what gender dysphoria is. It was more about identity and supporting identity than it was about gender dysphoria and how to best, because you know the training was called how to support transgender students. It wasn't how to support kids with gender dysphoria. 
So I was really annoying during the presentation and asked a lot of questions and was kind of, you know, probably drove the presenter nuts, but she handled it really gracefully. Um, but, you know, I went to the supervisor of all the counselors in the school at the time. I had been having meetings with her regularly, trying to show her the information that I was learning about the possible social contagion of gender dysphoria. And I remember her saying to me something like, you know, Sasha, honestly, the pace of change with all of these LGBTQ things is so fast that I can't even keep up. And so I think it's best if we just leave it to the experts. And I said, aha, that is what is happening. So in order to actually bring some sanity to this conversation, I think more of the clinicians who are catching this and seeing it have to become experts or else these advocacy groups which are ideologically driven are going to position themselves as the authorities and all the other clinicians who recognize what's going on will just be seen as like weird conspiracy theorists in a way right so at the time you know one of the people I had discovered in my research was Lisa Marciano she had done an interview I think it was in 2016 um, with Feminist Current, where she was the first person I heard talk about the potential social influence going on with these kids. And so I reached out to her, connected with her, and started realizing that there are no therapists actually offering services for gender dysphoric kids. Lisa wasn't seeing them. She was writing about it. And I know she's worked with detransitioners. And since she has worked with some dysphoric youth, but there were no therapists you could find that, that actually explicitly said, I work with gender dysphoric teens in a nuanced fashion. So for a while, I was the only person that I knew of explicitly um, advertising my services that way. And it was kind of weird and shocking. And I don't think I, I don't think I realized, A, how complicated the whole field is politically. I was just like, well, this is true. So obviously you just do what's true and everything will fall into place. And I was maybe a little naive because I had attacks against my license and things got real controversial real fast. Um, but for a while, I think I was the only person explicitly saying, like, I do this kind of exploration-based therapy. And I was inundated, as you might imagine, with contacts from parents, like frantic parents. And the kinds of stories I've heard now, I started my practice in 2016, it's now 2022. I've consulted with over 500 families and the kinds of things I've heard in these consultations um, is absolutely shocking. And it makes me pretty certain that this is a medical scandal. I know you guys have talked a lot about that and about what is going to be the fallout of this. So I, I agree very much with that perspective. And so um, I think we're coming around. I'm kind of just going on a long-winded <laughs> tangent oh, here, but, but um, we're, I think we're starting to turn the corner because now that we have clinicians from the affirmative camp, being like, oh, maybe it's a bad idea to, uh, you know, start medically transitioning small children before they go through puberty. Like now that the affirmative clinicians are speaking up, I think the media is starting to steer the ship very slowly. But um, people like 
Lisa Marciano and myself and Stella O'Malley and so many other therapists have been sounding this alarm for quite some time. And I'm glad that the media is starting to starting to notice, not fully aware, but starting to notice. I can understand how from from outside the LGBT community, it must feel like I can understand why there's so many sort of conspiracy theories that have spun off of this because it must seem like we're all in on it, it you know, but I, and I'm not really well connected to um, the LGBT community anymore, but I mean, I certainly wasn't in on this. I've, I've watched this weird thing take over wondering where did this come from and how did this happen? And, and there's certainly, I mean, I have, I mean, Aaron feels the same way and like a lot of us in the LGBT community have no idea where this came from or how this happened or why things seem so weird and who is making these decisions on our behalf it, it it's mm-hmm. seemed a bit of a mystery to me and, and then when I started hearing psychologists talk about psychic epidemics it seemed to be a feasible explanation for what's happening that this thing just sort of bubbled up that seems to seems to not have a single source, but what what is your understanding of what a psychic epidemic is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of different angles we could go. I mean, Carl Jung talked a lot about um, mass hysterias and um, psychic epidemics are periods in time where a culture on a whole is exhibiting more mental illness than it is exhibiting sanity. So in this particular realm, we could look at the fact that um, a delusion kind of sweeps through a population and the delusion is not connected to any observable objective reality. And I, I would say in this case, it makes sense because again, we've moved away from talking about gender dysphoria, which is a condition which even that is a bit tricky. I know, Aaron T., you were telling me about this book that you're reading. So we'll talk about that, how all psychiatric and psychological conditions, for the most part, are culturally constructed rather than something like finding a cancer cell in your lung. You can do the biopsy. You can examine it. You can determine what it is. What is the component of cellular structure of those, whatever all mental health diagnoses to a degree are shaped by our cultural understanding of what it means to be mentally ill. And so when it comes to this current kind of thing that we're going through regarding gender identity, it's like individuals and institutions have all been captured by this not objectively verifiable idea of someone's gender identity. And it is taken over. And then in a kind of psychic epidemic, you'll find that individuals who are trying to speak about the objective reality or truth are kind of deemed heretics or you know, the bad people. So we've seen epidemics happen like this in so many realms. Of course, we know about the witch hunts and something I thought was really interesting was the multiple personality disorder and satanic panic rituals. So they're kind of connected, but not necessarily. And so this happens in, in cultures or in moments of time where there's a lot of psychic stress or destabilization and people who are vulnerable to these kinds of epidemics are individuals who, I mean, it could be all of us, but also individuals who are 
vulnerable in some particular ways. Like, for example, with the teenage girls being highly vulnerable to social contagions, um, teenage girls do experience a lot of very distressing and destabilizing aspects of their identity and their sense of self and their emotions. And so all of these factors can make somebody more vulnerable or susceptible to taking on this kind of um, mass hysteria or mass uh, psychological illness. Mm-hmm. And it the happens girls are more empathetic than boys. Yeah. And so it, it kind of, that's how it, how it kind of spreads in girls is yeah. because they're, they're connecting so deeply with one another, whereas boys, not as much. Yeah, the way girls share in their relational sense, the way they share with one another is by, you know, talking about their most psychological and intimate parts of themselves and then empathizing with one another and trying to relate to one another and hearing one another's distress. And that's incredibly powerful in a positive way. And it has tricky, um, I guess, implications too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some interesting parallels between the, the satanic panic or, or um, the dissociative identity disorder explosion that happened because the role of the media, because I, th- I believe that started when the, the book Civil was written and then the movie was created about it. So it put it in this very rare psychiatric condition into public consciousness. So the media was more interested in it. Um, therapists it was on therapists' minds, and someone client yeah. coming in that the therapist had a role in creating mm-hmm. false memories because it they were they were kind of primed to be looking for this. Yeah, well, we can talk a little bit about that. So um, I think one person that your audience should be aware of is Debbie Nathan. She's a journalist who covered both um, phenomena. So she covered the multiple personality disorder epidemic, and she also covered the satanic panic ritual abuse epidemic. And um, all of the kind of false accusations and individuals who were jailed for years behind these really crazy accusations were later exonerated. But so, you know, Debbie Nathan documented in a book called Sybil Exposed. Um, There was a psychiatrist, I can't remember her name now, but she had been kind of nursing this theory about multiple personalities. And she had a patient who came in and reported something kind of odd, like there's a little girl inside of me or something. And so working with this patient, they ended up kind of co-constructing this really rich narrative and also, of course, personal experience in the patient that she had these multiple parts of herself. And I think the psychiatrist got someone to co-write a book with her. She got an author, like a a writer to co-write a book with her. And um, this book was very, very popular. And within, I think, a 10 year span of time, just thousands and thousands of cases of multiple personality disorder were being reported in the literature. Um, And when you think about it, I I think what's important for people to remember is that all these cases of psychic epidemics are um, indicating something metaphorically true. And I think the same is true for gender dysphoria, okay? So if you say metaphorically, there are different parts of me inside. That's metaphorically true. 
You know, if I am, you know, just waking up, getting out of bed and like having my coffee, I am a different person than when I'm deep in a therapy session with someone reporting a trauma to me. And so I'm experiencing myself in different ways. Or if I'm incredibly angry at my sister, this rage part of me, like that's like maybe this angry man that just wants to lash out. So metaphorically, these things are true. There's nuggets of truth in all of them. Mm-hmm. But then they become literally true. And the mind constructs kind of a narrative using that metaphor to understand all of the suffering. And then we're very malleable. And so we can kind of um, inflate those particular feelings or experiences. And so that man may become this guy named John who lives inside of me. And like, John's here now. And you're talking to John and John's pissed. And then in other moments, it's like, well, Ophelia just woke up and she's having her coffee and she's just feeling blissful. Like it can become much more uh, specific, okay? And so this book comes out, Sybil, and all of these young women start reporting that they have multiple personalities. And I think what's really important to remember in addition is that the role of the professionals, the medical professionals, is really important. And you probably are reading this in the book, Erin T, uh, called this book, Crazy Like Us. In any culture, we have individuals who are seen as the authority figure on all things healing and wellness, right? So whether that's a shaman in a different type of culture that kind of mixes up potions and gives it to people, or in our culture, you know, like psychologists or psychiatrists who can describe to you what condition you have and how to treat it. So these are the authority figures in our cultures, which help us make sense of the distressing symptoms we have. And so when multiple personality disorder became um, reported in all of these patients, what was also happening in parallel is that clinicians developed like this whole theory and framework around multiple personalities and how to help extract multiple personalities. And similarly, you know, like repressed memories. So there was this belief that personalities come out as uh, an expression of splitting inside the person from memories they had to repress. So there was this theory that um, sexual abuse was incredibly rampant and that actually most people um, who have been abused don't know they've been abused. And so it's the therapist's job to help them reconnect with those memories. And so you had a field of psychology training therapists on how to do this. And they were using all kinds of interesting techniques. Like I know that there were therapists who used, can't remember the name now of the drug, but like kind of sedatives. They would give their patients sedatives to put them in this like trance-like state to help them, quote, recover the memories. So it's like the power of suggestion, the power of belief in the authority figure as having the answers to help you. And there are tons of reports of that time of people saying, you know, like I came to a psychologist with depression and I left with multiple personalities and I left with like a repressed memory. And it's almost, you know, very similar to what's happening now. Of course, it's different that we have social media. So kids Mm -hmm. are self-diagnosing before they get Mm -hmm. to the therapist. But, um, you know, of course, we have therapists now all being trained in this affirmative model, which is like, 
we all have this magic gender identity inside of us. And our job is to just help the kid experiment and try on different genders. And so it's really similar. And um, it's remarkable to me. And I, I, I hate to, I'm not trying to kind of characterologically attack this person, but it's shocking to me that Diane Ehrensaft, who is a developmental psychologist and one of the primary kind of proponents of gender identity theory, she was also a primary proponent of like the repressed memory sexual abuse stuff. So that's shocking. I mean, I have papers that she wrote about that. So it's like there's this belief in this magical unseen inner thing. And you can put that anywhere. It could be gender identity. It could be repressed memories. It could be multiple personalities. It could be who knows what's next, but this will come up some other way when all of this is over, I guess. When you were saying, you know, these therapists are, were in, intentionally putting people in a kind of trance-like state where they were more suggestible. I, I never really, though it seems obvious to me now, but it never really occurred to me that social media sort of plays that role yeah. of, of a trance-like state in which we're just absorbing information like, like TikTok. I mean, these kids look like they're in a trance when they're on their phones and they're, they're looking at yeah. TikTok videos. I mean, we know that spending a lot of time on screens creates like moments of dissociative experiences. And even dissociation is kind of a controversial term because we're talking about now dissociative identity disorder, which is on the rise again, by the way. There's a whole yeah. TikTok community of DID kids. Everybody talking about their systems. Yes. Um, and now the two converged. I'm sure everybody's seen that really viral video of the young woman or maybe teenage girl talking about how she has multiple people in her system all of them are trans men, she is not, and now she has to transition to appease all the trans men in her system. Yeah. So horrifying. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, to, to the idea of dissociation, it's not that you are completely a different person, but it, it's pretty obvious to any of us who's ever used technology that, you know, you spend too much time like staring into a screen and you kind of forget that, oh, my leg went numb 10 minutes ago. I didn't even notice. Or, you know, like, it is somewhat of a dissociative experience to be kind of glued into this blue light screen and you're no longer connected to the 3D physical world around you. So there is a hypnotic element to watching videos for hours and hours and hours and kind of going further and further down that rabbit hole. Frightening stuff. Um, I did sort of, a, it wasn't an intentional experiment. It ended up in hindsight being an experiment because I was on a, a Facebook group of, of, it was about 2000 older trans men. So I think it was like thir age 30 and up. A lot of them had on there talked about, and I've been on that forum for, for years. I, I wasn't participating in it much, but it was a group that I was on on Facebook and kind of forgot about it, but their posts mm -hmm. would come up every so often and very low drama group, um, just a bunch of older trans guys. And a lot of them, because they're older, had lived part of their lives as lesbians before they transitioned. So I thought here would might be an interesting place for me to just test an idea, um, and I just, knowing that a lot of them had lived as lesbians as in their past, I, I asked, I posed the question to them of, do they ever feel as though they're in conflict between trans rights and women's rights when they hear stories about, you know, men being transferred into female prisons and things like that? Do they ever feel an inner conflict about that mm. of having been lesbians at one time? 
And I knew some guys that were on that forum personally. Um, but the immediate reaction was, you're a bigot, you're a turf. And I was booted off of the forum with no conversation. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Um, mm-hmm. Because I knew some of these guys from 10, 15 years ago. And back then, it was we were still in the lesbian community and trans men. And, and I've talked about this before in the podcast, that trans men and... and um, butch lesbians were still in similar social circles at that time there was some tension building between the two mm-hmm. as butches were grieving the loss mm-hmm. of a lot of us but it it was still very clear to me like we weren't set all of a sudden completely different species just because some of us started taking testosterone and and then I left the community so it was just interesting to me that something has taken over the, the consciousness of, of these mm-hmm. guys, like they're, where they're not able to think critically anymore and they're not able to acknowledge their past as, as women. And it, it was just shocking to me that this, this, this way of thinking has set in, like a mass psychosis has set into this whole community of people. You know, I'd be so curious, Aaron, if you were sitting down with any of these guys one-on-one, like over coffee or something, and just having a conversation face-to-face, I wonder if you would have gotten that same reaction. Because another concept that I keep thinking about is, um, it's funny because, you know, I talk about this concept all the time, and then I literally forget it the second before it's supposed to come out of my mouth. Pluralistic ignorance. There it is. Pluralistic ignorance. Is, is the idea that um, we all hold the perspective that what is being said out loud is the most common belief. So if the, the, what is said out loud is you're a bigot, you're a turf that's transphobic, we assume everybody really thinks that. But pluralistic ignorance is documented and it shows that a lot of times most of us actually don't think that but we're all scared to say because we think everyone else thinks so. So, you know, there are lots of examples where a, like a, a touted belief, the most visible belief, is actually not what's true in most people's minds. So especially with the age group that you mentioned there, Aaron, these individuals are old enough to remember the kinds of discrimination that they faced as lesbians and the kind of challenges that women face. So I would suspect that on one hand, some of them probably are kind of caught up in this mass delusion. But I wonder too, with social media and the kind of performance and posturing that we all do online, wonder if that's an element that also needs to be considered when we talk about this here. Mm. That's a good point. Yeah, I think most of most of what we do online, and I had to kind of kind of think about this a lot a couple of years ago when I was getting. just having a, a really antagonistic, an antagonistic conversation with a with an old coworker of mine who who I considered a you know you know a good a good, good acquaintance, light friend yeah. somewhere in there, um, and he was basically calling me a transphobe um, and getting all these likes and right and then I was getting all those you know the the, the sarcastic laughy reaction you know so the, all this is going on, and I'm like it had occurred to me like he's he's performing for his fans like he's yeah. he's he's saying this for the likes like this isn't a conversation we would have interpersonally this is this is a conversation he knows what his audience wants to hear and i am just 
the wall that's happening against. Um, and so I think we, yeah, like so much of what happens on social media is done with the clear understanding that I'm performing for an audience and I need to say what they want to hear or what, what's going to get a positive reaction or uh, what's going to, what's going to clear my name so that I'm not associated with the bad person. Um, so yeah, it's very different what people do for an audience, which is all social media basically happens for an audience yeah. and what yeah. we have interpersonally. Yeah. You know, something else I'm kind of thinking about is that like mass psychosis happens when enough fear is drummed up in a culture or in a society. And I'm thinking about, you know, parents, like most parents that I talk to have found me because they're solidly on the side of like, this doesn't sound like my kid. I need to understand what else is going on. But then every now and then I speak to a family that maybe has adopted the affirmative model and sometimes they're on their way to realizing that the affirmative model didn't really help their kid. Like maybe they saw an escalation in behaviors or whatever. Sometimes I talk to families that are still really gung-ho about the affirmative model. And what I've noticed is that it's, it's really coming from a place of fear. If a parent who's known their kid for 15 years, their kid suddenly comes out with this announcement that seems shocking it's only because of really extreme fear that a parent would go along with it. And when you mm -hmm. think about that as like buying into a delusion, it makes a lot of sense because under no regular circumstances where you think everything is safe and fine, would you go along with it? It's only because you're really afraid of something terrible happening that you're going to put aside everything that you knew for 15 years and go with something that feels super counterintuitive and unusual. And I mean, when you look at in, in history, you know, mass psychoses that have happened, you know, we, we know that the culture is always terrified of some horrible disaster. And that's why they go with a delusion instead of objective reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes me think of, obviously, there's so many parallels that can be drawn from, obviously, like recent history, what we were just talking about with psychic epidemics, but like the most famous one from history, you know, like the Salem witch trials, um, at a time of great uh, social unease when there's basically mm -hmm. like native raiding parties tearing mm -hmm. up villages all around them. And um, anyway, it's, yeah, there's this kind of sense of, of the outside world, there's something very scary is happening yeah. beyond our control. And we kind of like just sort of, yeah, uh, fixate and ruminate on, on these yeah, I don't, I don't understand why that happens, but apparently, apparently it, it just seems to keep happening throughout history. But it, this one is just so interesting in that, again, like in recent history, the, you know, the medical establishment has encouraged it and um, facilitated it. And that's obviously happening again here. Um, but Aaron, going back to what you were saying is like, this isn't a conspiracy. Like I didn't, I wasn't aware of any, mm -hmm. like what was going on or what was driving this is I see like these just a handful of cultural influences that are very overwhelming, which is yes, this, this kind of fear of this really weird, um, uh, you know, zeitgeist shift that we've had uh, with, with, with social media and just like globalization and where we are like as in culturally um, is very interesting right now. And I think, so that, that kind of unease that, that seems to precipitate these in the past. Um, and then as well as the, the, See, I object to the LGBT saying LGBT because part of the big problem is conflating this with mm -hmm. with homosexuality because then there's like this um, 
uh, it's like a moral righteousness to fight for trans rights because we we know what happened with mm -hmm. you know with homophobia and we won't want to make that mistake again. So I think so much mm -hmm. of this is has been pushed forward by the gay conflation. And then when you add social media, obviously that's going to make a psychic epidemic or a social contagion exponentially worse than they were ever able to be before. Like Sasha, you said, you know, we we these these you know, psychological problems or what we, how we're diagnosing different mental illnesses. They're completely socially constructed. And in the past, they were also socially confined, right? Cause like, you know, we weren't able to just, just talk about it, you know, to, to anybody that wasn't basically in our, in our near, you know, vicinity. Um, and now with social media, it's like, they're no longer socially confined. And so yeah. just like, yeah, again, in that book, um, crazy like us, where the notion of anorexia, the Western notion of anorexia is imposed on Hong Kong. And suddenly all these girls are developing this Western notion of anorexia that didn't exist there previously. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, yeah, the early, or that was in the nineties, right? So the beginning of kind of like this, this again, the globalization of the American mind as the book's titled. But um, so now, now it's like with every, every kid from the age of like, you know, 10 at the latest is basically on social media and is absorbing these, these ideas that are just in broadcasting their own and everybody's just hyper engaged the world over. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, uh, there's mm -hmm. just, and then, and then when, you know, we're, we're in a post religious age as well, we're in a, like a secular, basically everything, but we're, but we're still driven to find religions and communities that, that kind of where we have a shared moral code and yeah. um, a moral purpose. And this provides that. And so there's just so many things that make this just take such a strong yeah, it just has, has gripped us so strongly for, I think, a variety of mm -hmm. reasons. And that's why it's going to be really, really difficult to untangle it all. Maybe why it's taken me by surprise is that the, the private conversations I have with my trans buddies hasn't changed. So when we're all sitting around the kitchen table, we're still talking about, yeah, when I used to be a dyke at the folk festivals, and it, we're pretty open about our mm -hmm. whole history. But when we're at, at work or out in public or around strangers, we're just dudes because there there is a fear of that well it isn't really appropriate to be that intimate with strangers but there yeah. is fear that if we're out as trans guys because most of my friends live what we call stealth where they're not out to everybody and they don't announce that they're trans everywhere they go and they they just blend into society as you know appearing as men so there is a fear of if people knew this about me, knew my history, knew that I was trans, that it would change their perception of me. And, and in some cases, maybe I wouldn't, wouldn't be safe, um, which is a realistic fear in some cases. But I think that fear is also, um, that fear is also, can be, can be exaggerated and, and overblown as well. Do you think that that fear well, maybe not necessarily the fear of being harmed or treated a certain way, but do you think that that fear of people knowing your kind of whole history is exacerbated by the kind of gender ideology concept, which is that you are a man, you've always been a man, and to say anything otherwise is transphobic. Like, that seems to be really distinct to a certain kind of activist mindset and a certain kind of current rhetoric, which is different from transsexualism, which is, um, I'm very aware of my biological sex. I was born this way. I transitioned to be this other way, but all of that was part of my life. Like the, the, the young people that I talk to now seem to be 
really just trying to pretend like that entire history didn't happen. And that's validated by the, the idea that, well, if you're trans, you were always the bio, the sex that you claim to be. What do you think of that? I haven't had many, you know, more intimate conversations with the younger ones about how, how they think of all of that. I'm, I mean, I, in my practice, when I was seeing some trans identified youth, we were talking about that a little bit and most of them seemed pretty realistic about it, that Mm -hmm. they were hungry for an explanation and they had obviously been doing like the ones that I would say had like the classic gender dysphoria seemed more realistic about it. Like, yeah. And they had done research and found, you know, like the brain scan studies and stuff. And so they were trying to make sense of their gender dysphoria and, and trying to feel some sense of validation that it's a real thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and they, so I think they were all open to, to very reality-based conversations, but yeah, there were the ones that, that were very um, invested in the trans culture mm-hmm. who, were, who weren't as open to having conversations about biology and, you know, a very reality-based way of, of understanding it, because I don't think a lot of those kids had classic gender dysphoria. Yeah. Aaron, T, you were talking about, um, the way eating disorders spread in Hong Kong and the kind of globalization. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a rapidity through which these ideas can spread now that is so different from all the social contagions we have seen in the past, because the truth is we've seen this happen time and time again in so many different cultures, but this is so diffuse because of the way kids use social media. And it's pretty interesting hearing from Uh, parents in other countries where, you know, in the Far East or in South America, where the cultural context around issues of, you know, race and gender and all of that is so different. And yet their kids are watching American TikTok teenagers talking about activism and how to be anti-racist and all this stuff. And so it's really interesting to see that we're not only exporting our concepts of mental illness, but we're also exporting our concepts of what like social justice looks like, which never take into consideration the way these issues of race, class, gender, sex show up in other countries in totally different contexts. So, I mean, it's, it just came to my mind and I find it to be really fascinating. And I guess a little bit sad that we're, homogenizing the way a whole generation of young people think that is culturally and contextually inappropriate for where they are in the well, world. I and I just find hold. that weird. Like, why, why do you think it would take hold then? You know, like if you're absorbing content that just seems completely foreign to what's going on, you know, in your country, in your culture, um, why, why, why does it take hold? Like, why do they, why not just be like, this you is... Know, I think I actually can speak to that. So like my parents are from Egypt, but they both left Egypt when they were pretty young. My dad is around 20 and my mom's in her teens. So to be fair, I mean, I'm totally, totally Westernized, but I have friends in Egypt that I keep in touch with on social media and also through like conversation. And I know that in a lot of the world, especially develop the developing world, America is seen as the gold standard for everything. We're the most advanced. We have the most money. We have the most medical technology. Um, 
And so also, you know, if you think about entertainment, like American films are the gold standard everywhere as being the coolest and edgiest. And so you see even prior to social media, like this isn't even related to TikTok, you know, celebrity culture from the U.S. is fantasized about by people in every part of the world. And so whatever is popular and cool here is okay. seen as like the next progressive good thing. Now, of course, in Egypt, there are a lot of people that critique the West and critique America for some of the things we do and say, but the young generations who are trying to differentiate themselves from their parents, they look to the West to be you know, setting the tone for like how you talk. I mean, there, there's even a word in Arabic um, which means like uncool. And it's when you say certain things that are like the traditional Egyptian kind of language versus like more chic words that they use. So they will blend like Arabic and English words. And that's like what the cool young generation does. So I just think it's hard to estimate why, like how important America is seen in so many different realms. And I think, especially when it comes to you know, our medical understanding, like if you have a sick person in any developing nation, I promise you their fantasy is to come to America for treatment. Mm -hmm. So whatever we are saying in terms of like, what is social justice? What is healthcare? What is all this stuff? I think that is probably seen as uh, what to strive for. Okay. Okay. We're just culturally, culturally collapsing on ourselves, but other people are still like, oh, this is good. This is good. Yeah. In the coming yeah. weeks, we're going to have a trans man on from Africa, who's a psychologist in Africa, but also a, a trans man. So it'll be, I'm really looking forward to just asking him oh. how all of this is playing out in a very different, mm-hmm. on a different continent. For sure. Because yeah. yeah, really last year, the UN re- released a report last year um, about gender identity, the gender gender identity framework, I think is what they called it. And mm-hmm. we're saying that we want to implement this framework around the world because it's proven to be of benefit to um, the LGBT community worldwide. And it's like, uh, I don't know if we want to really spread our, it's one of our worst ideas ever around the globe. I know. Do you know what country he's from, your guest? I actually don't know which, which country. I think it's um, Western Africa. Okay, interesting. Well, you know, th- this kind of also brings up a conversation we had recently with Paul Vazy. It's either Vazy or Vazy. I forgot how to pronounce his last name, but he is the researcher who studied the Fafafine. And for some, I don't know if you guys are seeing this, but in the last like three months, I've seen people talking about the Fafafine constantly, and I had never heard of the Fafafine before. Is this a Twitter thing? Or I don't, I, I don't I know. Think, I, I've never heard of it until recent conversations, because um, Helen Joyce talks about them a good amount yes. in trans. Yes. And I think maybe that was, was the inundation in our little cultural, our little yeah, yeah. cultural sphere was, was because, yeah. but she's talking about Paul Vassy's research, right. <laughs> as I right. understand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it was really interesting to talk to him because, I mean, what it boils down to is that the way we understand innate phenomena is culturally dependent. So it's not that there's no such thing as people who behave and act like or feel more comfortable in the opposite sex roles. That's innate. But I think the way we label, categorize, and understand those individuals is what's culturally 
you know, dependent. Um, and I guess this, this whole thing really is interesting because while somebody like Paul studies the Fafafine who are usually identified pretty young as being sex, sexual atypical males, um, this whole ROGD thing also brings up the question of like, well, what is innate and what's not? And can you develop symptoms that start to look as though they were innate, even though they were late onset? Like the whole thing is really interesting. And we've been doing this pioneer series on our podcast where we talk to people whose knowledge is kind of foundational. And some of them have been therapists and some have been sexologists and sex researchers. And it seems like overall the sex researchers believe that what they're studying is innate. And then therapists and psychologists from our, I guess, our world seem to think that a lot of this is socially mediated. So I'm really curious of like where that overlap is because I'm not sure. Like, I really don't know if it's easy. It's not easy to draw a distinction. And I, I really believe that we can adopt all kinds of symptomatology culturally uh, that is maybe not innate. So I, I, I don't know if I have a question or I'm just throwing out ideas, but you guys really focus on gender dysphoria as a condition. What do you guys think? I mean, what's the GD Alliance position? Like is gender dysphoria an innate condition? <clears throat> well, I, my, my answer to that would be, it depends on how you're, how you're defining gender dysphoria. I mean, my, my whole interest in this, uh, this area is, is basically kind of kind of tearing apart the notion of gender dysphoria and looking yeah. at the nitty gritty that that we're kind of dumping in there, and so. <laughs> but I think I think what looks like innate gender, or because because a lot of what people call gender dysphoria is a sen, is a like a, a, a like a body identity disorder dysmorphia related to their mm -hmm. sex characteristics, right? And then that can obviously be caused by um, childhood sexual abuse or just a harassment that over time that, you know, mm -hmm. <clears throat> internalizes to a certain degree. Um, then there's like the, the, the paraphilia uh, kind one, which um, obviously there's controversial about controversy about whether that's innate or not. Um, then there's obviously the, um, uh, like, like Paul Dassey was talking about, and this is, is unfortunately um, controversial as well. I don't understand why is that, well, maybe people who are, are homosexual um, it's because their brains are more masculinely aligned or feminine. And so like, mm -hmm. like that's why gay men often seem much more feminine, in, like, like in a way that women yeah. are and, mm -hmm. and lesbians much more masculine in a way like men are. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, that can easily be understood as like the innate gender dysphoria, but a lot of those people, you know, outgrow their feelings of unease with their sex and it never right. becomes like a body association, you know, whereas the more yeah. sex dysmorphia is, and I think, I think, I think the dysmor the sex dysmorphia is one that develops. It, that's culturally, that's culturally inundated upon you. Um, it doesn't make it any less real than, you know, whatever mm -hmm. could be, you know, innate. Um, and then the, the paraphilia one, that's, well, yeah, that's another, another story uh, entirely. And some of these overlap as well, actually, um, because, you know, if you have a, like with autogynephilia, you know, if you're, you've got this fixation on having a female body and then when your male body contradicts that, you can result in revulsion to your, to your male sex, you know, like, and that's still mm -hmm. a dysmorphia. Um, so, so yeah, that's, there's no way to answer like, what is gender yeah. dysphoria? Is it yeah. innate? Is it culturally constructed? Because it's, 
you know, we're, we're defining so many different things as, mm-hmm. as gender dysphoria. One of the mm-hmm. things, I mean, because I had an experience of what I now call gender dysphoria from such an early age, it's easy to think that it's innate because it, I mean, I, it's, I can remember it as far back as like around age two or three, but I think one of the ideas that I've been expo- exploring for myself is I, I sense that there's a dimension of homosexuality that isn't well understood. I mean, we understand mm-hmm. it as who you are attracted to, but I think there's an element, there's also a dimension of being gay or lesbian of an instinct to mirror the opposite sex. And we see this in, in other animal species when, mm-hmm. when an animal is, is gay, whether it's a lion or a cat or a dog or whatever, when an animal is gay, it, it tends to behave socially like the opposite sex. And yeah. I, so I think that that mm-hmm. is perhaps an innate part of same sex attraction um, that a lot of us experience as children and our culture tries to stamp that out. I mean, you hear, I've heard so many gay men say that, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I was, I really liked wearing my mom's dresses and high heel shoes, but there was a certain age where I was told that's not okay. That's not how boys behave. And I actually think it's a natural part of a gay or lesbian sexual orientation that gets culturally Mm -hmm. stamped out Mm -hmm. of us. And I think Mm -hmm. for some of us, it, it's, um, I think it, it exists on a continuum uh, and, and like a spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't think it's as an intense an instinct in, in all gay or lesbian people. So perhaps mm-hmm. easier for them to just shut that off mm-hmm. and maybe find an outlet for it as a drag queen or something. But I think some of us, we have trouble shutting it off because we're on that, just the far end of that spectrum of that aspect of our sexual orientation. And, and so for me, I do, it, it does feel like I'm, I've reclaimed a part of myself because I do think that aspect of my sexual orientation, not because I'm claiming an actual manliness. I don't believe I actually changed sex, but I think I, it feels authentic to me because it's a claiming mm-hmm. of my sexual orientation mm-hmm. that our culture had no tolerance for. Oh my God. That's such a good point. I mean, I, I remember thinking many times we started learning about all this gender stuff, like, wow, we have, moved on as though we have somehow learned everything we need to know about homosexuality. Like we are so arrogant to think that, oh, we got that gay thing down. Because I think the narrative is like, as long as people can say the words, I'm gay, and then have others go, great, then we've conquered it. But actually there's so much we don't really, we haven't integrated that fact at all. And I think uh, part of what's interesting is like, the whole queer theory thing, which I know, Aaron Kay, you talk about this a lot of, of changing boundaries and definitions. Like for us to say, you know, um, being gay has nothing to do with like how feminine or masculine you are. True. Okay. Absolutely. Like, of course, there are going to be people who have same sex attractions that are very gender typical. But the fact is, there's this something that we all I think instinctively know about gay people acting and mirroring the opposite sex that we haven't properly integrated into our culture in a way that there is acceptance and room for that and we've moved on so quickly to labeling that as trans um and I'm I'm just thinking about you know like some of the years that I spent more immersed in the lesbian community, I mean, it was so obviously known that there was this way that some of the, you know, masculine lesbians 
mirrored men, men's behavior and were referred to as guys. And it was, it was innate and it was also kind of playful and it was understood again, somewhat metaphorically. It wasn't literally that they were guys. And I knew a lot of women who wore like sports bras or binders, but they were still lesbians and they had this masculine aesthetic and they hung out with, you know, whenever there would be like an interaction and some cis quote cis regular guys were around, they would either be kind of like mocked or critiqued by them, or they would be like one of the guys. Like this was so known in certain communities, but I don't think it was really integrated into the wider conception of what it means to be gay. I think like the mainstream is like, oh, cool, you're dating another woman or you're married to a woman. It's about like gay rights and about being able to say I'm coming out. And it's about saying we have a lesbian that works for us. But where is the real understanding that these are natural variations? I mean, that's where I agree with the gender theorists. These are natural variations in human identity and expression. But they've literalized it and chopped it up into a bunch of different labels rather than understanding these are kind of subtle things that you probably won't get unless you're really immersed in the lives of individuals who have these experiences. Which in the early days of queer theory, I think that's what it was aiming to do is just creating some cultural space for the gender nonconformity yeah. of gay and lesbian people. And it, but it's, it, it became way too literal. Yeah. Sasha, you had a great quote um, from many, I think it was one of the early episodes of General Wetter Lens, I was listening to you, where basically said, what we're doing is we're, we're concretizing, I can't even say that word, concretizing, you know what I'm saying, concreting yeah. uh, abstracts and abstracting concretes. And it's just a very, um, uh, very dangerous thing to do, um, but we're seeing to just gleefully be doing that right now. I, I will, um, I don't remember saying that, that's pretty good. I, do have to say, I think I borrowed the word concretizing from Lisa Marciano, who talks about this Ooh, a lot, okay. because she talks about taking something um, that is a metaphor and turning it into something concrete and mm -hmm. literal. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's, a, it's really an attempt to make sense of something. And I think the way we make sense of something in a contemporary world is by labeling it and defining it and turning it into something um, in, in our kind of lexicon of identities, you know, like these identity lists. It's, it's really an unfortunate direction for things to go when identity is actually so much more complicated and interesting it's unfortunate that we're just kind of distilling it down to these, it's almost boring, like these memeified Instagram things you can throw up, but you know, like, um, I, I, would like I would like to encourage people to listen to an episode that we did with Stephen Levine, where he talked about identity in this incredibly rich way as a kaleidoscope, you know, that there are these different parts of us. And then as we grow and interact with different people and have different life experiences, you kind of turn the kaleidoscope and the parts shift and change. And it's, it's really beautiful. And it's very poetic. And I, I do think we've kind of collapsed onto ourselves in a way that prevents us from seeing that much more rich way of looking at ourselves. And I wonder too, you know, um, Recently, we talked to Dr. Az Hakim in the UK. It's not out yet, but he was talking about the overlap with autism. 
Mm-hmm. And it's really gotten me thinking. I don't think I've thought about this enough, but the way we, you know, a person with autism is really into categorization and labels and concrete thinking and that black and white thinking feels deeply inter- intertwined with the way things have gone. And I wonder too, if that's a function of technology itself, like how deep can you really get when you're sharing memes and hashtags, you know, and I feel like the, the direction things have gone would not have been possible without the role of social media and technology, because these platforms just shape and mold the types of thoughts we can even have on the platforms. Whereas mm-hmm. like you talked about Aaron Kay, you know, queer theory came out in the nineties and that was prior to, you know, the, the widespread use of, you know, uh, the internet in that particular way. So I, I, I just wonder, like, is this a manifestation of something that is directly tied to technology use, like super directly? And does that mean that we have to shift our technology use to get out of it? Is it just going to keep morphing into like other weird, like online campaigns, you know, like you, you can almost see it with like the detransition campaigns too. Like, I don't want everything to just become another like social media um, driven narrow mm-hmm. uh, silo where everyone's just in their little boxes. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just went all over the place, but I'm really curious about the role of technology and all this and where it's going. I, I am as well. I've been wondering for a while. It's like, I feel like social media has done, has done a lot of, I mean, originally I think it was doing, you know, it was good. You know, everybody thought this is great, you know, mm-hmm. um, but, but it seems like the, the end result has been quite disastrous. And I'm wondering how do we get ourselves out of it? It seems like the only option is just be like, nope, that was a bad idea. It didn't work out well. Let's shut it down. That's obviously not going to happen. No. You know, we, no. we just can't do that. But also <laughs> can we really solve the problem social media has created with social media? I don't think so as either. Um, so I, I, I honestly am at a loss as to where this goes, but I'm quite fascinated by the idea. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, there seems to be like a point of where all these things converge, right? Because a lot of people with autism are into tech. A lot of trans people are into tech. So mm-hmm. we see that point of converge convergence where a bunch of people with autism who like that, like, as you say, those categories in order, they're the ones actually creating a lot of these social media platforms that are on social media a lot and and then spreading some of these queer theory based trans ideas. Yeah. I'm speaking of Asakim, um he was I obviously haven't listened to that episode yet. I'm looking forward to it, but I was hearing another no, I think maybe it was a tweet from his I was reading when he was asked about detransitioners and regret, right? And he basically said, I've noticed the more autistic, the less they regret. And so yeah. it, it was almost baked into his answers that, that these people are typically quite autistic and it's just how autistic is, is the question, you know, mm-hmm. and, and how, how that experience shapes out. Um, yes. Um, and I, I, I was telling Aaron, I think when, once we finally get to the bottom of this, like, I don't know what, what that means, like all the gender thing. I don't know what that means, but like, I feel like once it's all decontextualized, obviously I'm quite optimistic when I'm talking about this, like, I'm like there's an end point is how I, how I see it, uh, which is probably not the case, but I keep thinking it's like when, when we, when we reflect on this period of history, I think, I think the autism thing is going to be overwhelming. It's going to be overwhelmingly obvious in retrospect, but it's like, you know, in it. Unless, 
unless we we just keep producing people with more and more autistic traits and nobody will ever be able to put it all together <laughs> i don't know i don't know I mean, that's probably that's probably insulting on like 40 different levels but i mean if if as hakeem is right that the more autistic traits you have the less kind of cognitive dissonance you, you have about this then i mean if we were being really cynical we could say well maybe this is just a, a new language-based reality and as long as the pronouns are right it's all good you know i i don't know i i think that i think that the medical truths will have to be what catches up to people and um i i wonder like for for people like yourself who are of course very very aware of all of these complications if you experience like negative impacts from your medical transitions do you think that lands differently on you than on somebody who for example isn't like a total fantasy that i'm going to become literally the same thing as a biological male and like i've heard people talk about well now i'm just kind of changing all my risk factor levels to the same exact risk factors as a biological male rather than well i have a female biology and when you do these things to a female body there are some other really complicated things. Like, I I'm just wondering, because I think sometimes about like, what is the bursting bubble that creates some people's desire to come off of hormones and either stay identified as trans or detransition. And I think sometimes it's the people who lived in a real unrealistic fantasy and then the bubble bursts and they, they have this realization of, oh my God, I was totally misinformed about what this means. And I wonder about people like yourselves who have a much more like sober and grounded in reality perspective of transition. Like, do you think that's a protective factor on your mental health? Does, does that make sense? I think so. Certainly. I, I know for me, like I, um, I think Aaron as well, you've, you've had this experience where there are periods where we totally believed it. Like I, I for a long time, I believed my mm. brain was male, you know? Um, but I, so I think I talked myself down from it. I, I keep calling it like a deprogramming that I did to myself just based on reading detransition stories and, and hearing all the different experiences and realizing, oh, this isn't one thing. I've, I've done this for what, you know, my own personal reasons. And those aren't the same as other people. So I kind of talked myself down from it. I still, um, you know, socially and physically, I feel so much more comfortable now than I did pre-transition. And so, mm -hmm. so it's easy for me to just be like, you know, this was a decision I made based on weird ideological, I mean, well, it helped, but like, I, I think as I progressed in the transition and the more I got into the trans, like the more I believed the literalness of it, that my brain is male. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it was kind of like a roller, like a mountain, like of, of okay, I'm just altering my body, you know, <laughs> and then back to, okay, I just altered my body and, you know, it worked. And so I think because of the fact that I didn't have any disastrous, you know, fingers crossed, any disastrous um, implication you know, happened to my body, you know, like my top surgery was success, the success, you know, the hormones, mm -hmm. you know, I haven't had any problems really. Um, <clears throat> and then it was just, just intellectually, I talked myself out of it. Um, and so now, you know, if, if I do at a later date realize <clears throat> hormones are doing me much more harm than good, then, you know, I can, I can cross that <clears throat> bridge, you know, if and when it comes. Um, mm -hmm. But, but yes, I will have a much more sober understanding of, of what I've done and, and how to deal with it moving forward. Um, but it's interesting what you said um, is <clears throat> about the people who had this really concrete understanding of their transition and then some disaster basically 
took that. Like I was talking about this recently on the episode we did with um, with Laura, who's a detransitioner. She transitioned and detransitioned eons ago. Um, and, but she was saying that um, it's weird to see the fact that you know, now we've got all these like all these you know you know these queer genders, all these varieties of genders and pronouns, and people are taking like like micro doses of testosterone and getting, you know, nippleless mastectomies and, you know, mm-hmm. like people are going in these, in these really abstract um, mm-hmm. directions with it. <clears throat> when I first, you know, kind of encountered the idea of trans trending, I mean, now I believe we're all trenders. That's just kind of, it is a trend, but um, like <clears throat> when I first contact, when I first in- encountered that idea, I assumed, oh my God, these people are going to be detransitioning in droves, not me, not the true trans like myself. Mm-hmm. But then when I did actually start talking to the transitioner, the detransitioner, by and large, they're the people who who have that same thinking of me. It's like I'm really a male. I have right. to fix my body right. to be male. Right. And so I think, and I was wondering, like, why is it? Why are the detransitioners the the true trans, as it were? Yeah. But I think what you're saying yeah. that's exactly why is because yeah. because when something terrible happens in your transition, you have to come face to face with the reality of, oh, I'm not male, you know, and yeah. uh, or I'm not female, and 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 go from there. <clears throat> Yeah, I think that bubble that bubble bursts for lots of us because it's, and Aaron and I have talked about this quite a bit that it's hard to know. Like I had experienced a gender dysphoria, I saw this as treatment for gender dysphoria, but I still didn't really know what narrative makes the most sense to make sense of that whole experience because we're not being taught about what is gender dysphoria and what is the reality of that we're, we're so we I think it's common to cycle through different narratives trying to land on something that makes sense to our experience in a way that integrates our whole experience and helps us mm-hmm. mediate into the world and mm-hmm. none of those narratives really work unless you just sort of kind of dilute start to delude yourself and um and I wasn't I wasn't willing to live with that. I mean, as a mental health clinician, I value mental health and, yeah. and I want good mental health. And so that's when I just kind of gave up on a lot of those narratives because at some point we have to land in reality and in a way that we can just live an authentic life and feel integrated in some way. But I think, um, I think, you know, in the case of Aaron and I, we had enough mental health and resilience that when that bubble bursts, we were able to kind of pick ourselves back up and, and we're okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, mm-hmm. I worry about like maybe with someone with, with severe autism, they're able to just kind of stay in that delusion and, and filter out any contradictory information. But there, I think there's a point where the whole bubble is going to break, right. Where, where this becomes more, uh, it becomes just, main street culturally known that that this whole scandal has happened and so I do worry about the fallout of that for a lot of people not just trans people but also their families who supported them their clinicians who who supported them I I think the fallout from this is going to be huge which isn't isn't um to say that we shouldn't proceed you know to to Mm -hmm. correct this wrong Mm -hmm. but I do hope as we go, we're creating an infrastructure to support people through, I think, what's going to be an identity crisis for a lot of people. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I mean, we, we, um, sometimes, you know, my, my fiance will say like, how long do you think you'll be doing this gender stuff? And I said, it is going to keep shifting and morphing into different really severe needs forever. Like, 
I don't think in my lifetime, the, the individuals and the families impacted by this will stop needing some kind of evolving set of care. You know, it's really complicated and it's really our best guess at this point, what is going to happen down the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 <clears throat> I don't want to sound um, like hyperbolic or make, make any too many World War II equations that people are so, or equivalencies that people are easy, it's easy to do, uh, but I feel like it, it's going to be the same kind of, you know, when, when we discovered, and again, this is going to sound so intense, but you know, like when we discovered the concentration camps and what, what was happening that, that had been happening for years that people kind of like, oh yeah, there's a lot of discrimination happening and they're being oppressed over there. And, you know, uh, Hitler's gone too far, but, um, you know, not really understanding the gravity of what was, ha- what was being done uh, to, to thousands and then millions of people. Um, and again, so that's why it sounds so hyperbolic to make an equation, but I think what, what that, that kind of, that mental, like, Oh my God, what's been mm. happening? That same kind of cultural, um, this has all been happening right underneath our noses. And, and we either cheered it on, not really understanding what we were cheering on, or we just kind of like, oh, I'm sure they know what they're doing. We'll just let that go. You know, I'm not an expert. You know, I, I don't have any, you know, intelli- you know, any expertise on this issue. And I think, yeah, so, so like you're saying, Aaron, that identity, that that completely cultural identity crisis is going to happen and people are going to, it's going to be devastating for, for people far beyond just those immediately impacted. Sometimes I think if you, you know, if an alien came down to the planet that had no contextual understanding of anything and you told them um, the entire Western world is sacrificing the sexualities and future bodies of children based on an idea of being born in the wrong body, they would be really confused. And you really have to step back and look at what is happening and push aside all the narratives and just say, what are we actually doing to children's reproductive organs? (laughs) When you think about it like that, it's it's shocking and it really is uh, a testament to the importance for people to understand how these kinds of social forces work so we can be really hypervigilant about what things do we choose to believe in, what cultural narratives do we adopt as true, and where do we draw the line about where does physical objective reality need to be defended. That's why I keep... um you know, starting, starting a few years ago, I started to look at this, I'm a bit of a history buff. And so I put like a historical lens on it. Like I just put myself, you know, a generation or even like a decade or two in the future and look back at this, like you're saying the alien analogy, Mm. like that's what I started doing is just like, what are history students going to think, you know, 20, 30, 50 years from now going like, how did this happen? And then, so I've started looking at like, just looking at the current cultural forces that have enabled this, but it's still, yeah. it's still baffling to think that people can, can go, yes, you know, in some instances, some babies are born with the wrong brain and you have to fix their body so that it matches their brain. Like, it's just absolutely batshit, but like, we've just yeah. all gone. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, yeah. so that's, that's the part that's still like, and this is like Western medicine. We're supposed to be so like, um, uh, yeah, it's just, yeah. So objective, so evidence based. 
Yeah. It's like mm-hmm. if there was evidence for it. Like if there was evidence that they scanned all of our brains and there was, you know, something about our brain that was different than, than fine. But I think that's where, I think that's the part I, that kind of woke me up. It's like, but what is the evidence? So that, you know, this culture is trying to say that I actually am male. It's like, well, but what is the evidence of that? Like, and there, and there is none, but I think the magnitude of what's happened is a barrier to people waking up. Like it's so yeah. huge that it it sounds like a conspiracy theory, right? Like that yeah, all of our governments nice. are in on it. The entire LGBT community's in on it. Like at the UN level, they're all in on it. And so it sounds like a wacky conspiracy theory because it's so huge and it's so widely accepted as as the truth. And it's all around us. Like and life seems to be going on as as normal for most people. So I think it's going to be really it's it's a barrier to get getting people to accept that and to hear our side of things and and see that this is that this is true because it's well, going to cause such dissonance in people and and a, a cultural crisis that that's going to be a barrier to breaking through to the mainstream yeah just the realization of how far it's gone and i guess again to kind of go back to what we were talking about earlier remember one of the factors that makes a a society vulnerable to a mass psychic epidemic is fear. And I think the fear of suicide is what is being used as the number one driver. Like the the parents that I was referring to earlier, the ones who are willing to go along with it, they're doing it only because they're really afraid their kid's going to kill themselves. And this is a really serious topic. It's an important topic. I mean, I don't know if we have time to go into it here, but I think it's just important to understand the way that that misused statistic and misused, really there's a lack of evidence that this is a serious um, direct correlation. The Tavistock has said, luckily, that uh, suicidality is actually, or suicidal behavior is very rare. Luckily, there are very few completed suicides in gender dysphoric kids, but that fear is what creates the urge for people to just kind of be lulled into this, this false belief system. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think until we properly address that fear, and luckily, we know that there, there are a lot of mental health problems, but not necessarily any more than with other mental health conditions. And until we really address the misuse of that fear, I think people will be willing to kind of keep getting pulled along. One thing that doesn't tend to get highlighted with the Tavistock um, thing, when when that that ruling happened, I guess that was about a year ago, with, when it was ruled that that kids wouldn't be able to um, go on puberty blockers without a <laughs> So so all of that was halted for about a year until that was reversed. And to my knowledge, there weren't any completed suicides mm-hmm. in that year. Mm-hmm. So you know when they were when they weren't allowed to proceed with, with the medicalization. So, and that isn't a point that seems to be highlighted. Yeah. Lisa, uh, um, no, excuse me, Laura Edwards Leeper on her um, interview with Megan Dom on the unspeakable a few months back, she straight out said that the suicide statistic is completely false. Like there's yeah. no, there's no correlation here. Um, so I hope, yeah, uh, Laura and, and others will be yeah, kind of like, keep sounding that alarm that this is this is a this is a, a false uh scare tactic and it's uh, like the cruelest form of manipulation yeah there was an interview done in the the documentary film the swedish film the trans train 
and um, they were talking with a world-renowned suicide expert. I can't remember her name now, um, but she was asked about this 41% stat, which comes from the largest survey, the transgender survey done in 2015. And I think the question was, um, well, first of all, they didn't assess whether the individuals who are filling out the survey are pre or post transition. They're just individuals who identify as trans. And they were asked if they've ever attempted suicide. And I think 41% said yes. Um, and they asked this suicide expert, she's like a world renowned researcher who studies this. And they said, do you believe this? Do you think this is possible that 41% of the people in this study actually attempted suicide? And she said, no way, it's impossible. That is an astronomical number. And they kind of talked about the, the, the biases that can happen with anonymous online surveys asking about this kind of question is very, very tricky. And I think the, the reason suicide is so complicated to talk about is that if there is any chance that that 41% were telling the truth, that's a huge number. And we, we would want to do everything we can to prevent suicide ever if it's possible. And so I think people with suicide, I think the perspective is let's always err on the side of caution. Let's always take the most conservative approach. And I don't mean politically, I mean kind of like risk factor wise. So um, when you have, again, that kind of fear, people are willing to push the limits of their rationale into a place that of course makes us do things that end up being more harmful than helpful. And I think uh, along a similar lines, but in another direction is, um, again, with the parents, um, those who have chosen to go, go down the affirmative route, you know, probably on bane of the, the suicide threat, um, they, um, I, think, I think the parents who, who've, who've conceded to this ideology and the transition of their children, they're the ones who are going to fight so hard to maintain the perspective that transition is right and good yeah, and the best decision yeah. because like how do you grapple with that that decision um and i've said this before it seems like and then on the other side like this this is really hinging on the parents it seems like that's where the like the most of the the emotion and the, and the, the motivation comes from because yeah on one side you've got the parents who did affirm who did allow their children to go in that direction and they're going to cling to no this was the right decision this was necessary and then the other side of that is all the, all the fourth wave now parents and the gen spec parents who are fighting tooth and nail to destroy this and to stop it to save their children from it and so it's like those are the two it's the parents where the most of this this um i think cultural force is going to is going to be that and obviously those who are financially committed to, to the gender uh, industry yeah, you know, um, to be honest, I think the parents who go down the affirmative road, that's not that's not a homogenous group either, right? So there, yeah, are yeah, the, of course. there are parents, I think I've noticed this interesting trend of like parents of really feminine boys that are young, like the little one to transition, like three and four, sometimes they become like celebrity moms, right? And they make a whole career out of being a trans girl's mom. Then there's like, I mean, there's so many different parent groups that fall under this category, but I have met a significant number of parents who, when you look at their stories, they are also victims of a kind of toxic influence from the gender clinics. The mm -hmm. gender clinics use a lot of tactics to scare parents into submission, to make them feel rejected for asking certain reasonable questions really using the threat of suicide and, and fear. So these parents are also victims in a way too. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. when we, like you said, Aaron, T 
identity, when historians look back at this, the role of authority figures and professionals and the kind of coercion used there is really going to be important to examine. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thanks so much for uh, agreeing to come and, and chat with us. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, me great. too. Thank you for having me. Dark, dark content, but but uh, yeah, important <laughs> stuff. <laughs> I know it's, stuff. it's tough, but I'm glad we're all here. Yep, yeah, me too. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.